Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. Students, as they're working on projects, they're typically drawn to animals as well, and so there's so much going on in the plant world. And then, of course, obviously those interactions. Making our designs regenerative, it doesn't come naturally to us now because we've had such a history of thinking of improvement as sterilization. Students are thinking about these things and having conversations, and so we're hoping that biomimicry can be the lens and the practice that's used to help students think through how they can go about changing and making a positive impact on their world. Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers. This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... The initial problem, the way it presents, typically is not how you feel or think or understand the problem after the process. And we don't, you know, we don't always have the answer. That's part of biomimicry is it's the process and the outcome or the solution is the best that we can come up with it at the time, but that can also be iterated on, right? So you might have a, a solution that works in that context for that time period. your first morning on site at this eco-lodge tucked deep within a large tract of neotropical rainforest. Just before you head outside, you do a final gear check. Hat, sunglasses, binoculars, water, notebook. Yeah, it's probably a good idea to bring your passport along too, just in case. Alright, it's time to learn a few lessons from nature. Looking to nature as a teacher and mentor is at the heart of biomimicry. The Biomimicry Institute, or TBI, is dedicated to solving human design challenges in a regenerative way. Ian spoke with TBI's Director of Youth Education, Rosanna Ayers, about some of nature's most instructive lessons, real-world applications of biomimicry, and the Youth Design Challenge. Biomimicry, as the name would suggest, involves imitating nature, but of course there's a lot of nuance within that definition, so let's explore that nuance. What are some of the more specific aspects of biomimicry? That's a really good question. Um, you know, over, over the course of the, the development of, of TBI, the Biomimicry Institute, there have been iterations and deepening, of course, the understanding of how the public is interacting with biomimicry. And one of the uh, pieces that people are immediately uh, drawn to, one of the seeds of biomimicry is the emulation because through emulation, you can spend a lot of time researching organisms and finding out what they're doing and how they're doing it and why they're doing it in that specific context. So that one is, is typically fairly well understood the other two seeds of biomimicry, the ethos, um, that 
thread or seed of biomimicry that we've been elevating really speaks to what is our intention and what what are the outcomes as we're interacting with nature? Do we are we looking for solutions that are um, always supporting life, and are are we looking for decision points and when we uh, might take a shortcut or might take a deeper observation to find ways to honor to honor all life so uh, that component of, of biomimicry is really important to us at the institute as well as reconnect so getting out in nature and realizing that we are a part of nature that we've been using our thoughts and our observations to at times create things that feel like they're apart from from nature, but it's all one um, entire context. We are part of nature and the interactions that we're having in nature are not outside of it, it's a part of it. And so I think the reconnect piece has a lot of potential to heal people. I don't know about you, Ian, but there are times where I'm you know, in my office and I look outside of the window and really uh, fortunate. We have quite a few hummingbirds out here. Eucalyptus oh, trees. They're, trying, <laughs> they're so adorable. Um, yep. And so there are times where like even going to my mailbox, I'll, I'll see them. And there's something so nice about just going outside. It doesn't have to be, you know, very long distance, but just just being outside in nature and seeing what's happening and listening and becoming quiet. So the reconnect, um, the reconnect is really important to us individually at TBI because we, we use that time to kind of heal ourselves and go out in nature and explore. Yeah. We'll dive into the reconnect and how that relates to regeneration in a moment, but you gave me just the perfect segue and this is the host's dream. You brought up hummingbirds and I should ask, is it Rufus hummingbirds? Yeah, let me, can I, will it be too tappity-tappity if I look? No, that's okay. I've seen them in Arizona, and yeah, I think just Arizona. They were very impressive. Aggressive, but in, in a very impressive way. Yeah, we've been outside and had them come. I think my son and I were standing outside once talking, and a hummingbird came and flew in between us, and you know, we were just a few feet apart, just talking about, I don't even know what we're talking about, but it, the hummingbird came so fast, flew in between us, then circled back and flew away. And we looked like we were in slow motion. We were blinking, like, did you just see that? <laughs> and there's, they look so fun from a distance, but when they get a foot from your eye, <laughs> you know, it, it was quite shocking to realize how quickly, quickly that little fellow was moving. <laughs> yeah. So using hummingbirds as an example, and hummingbirds are just kind of one of those pinch yourself species where you're just like, how? Just how is this even right. happening? Right. What can we learn from hummingbirds looking through a biomimicry lens? What have hummingbirds inspired? Well, if someone were wanting to do an extremely deep dive into innovations inspired by uh, hummingbirds, you can go to Ask Nature. Love it. And look up all of the different fascinating little aspects of them, their abilities um, to fly, uh, how they're accessing their food source. Um, they're a little bit more about their personalities and what they might be after. I think about the context in which animals are uh, living. We've got our beautiful little hummingbirds around here, and we also have quite a few cats. 
And so as I watch those interactions and there have been times where, you know, it's, it's happened where we've seen one of our, our cats that's been able to catch a, um, a hummingbird. Really? And I, I think about their, yes, yes. Oh. <laughs> able to catch and it's, it was there, the, the smaller, more juvenile, they're, they're, they're small enough. They almost look like a little uh, bumblebee at times. You have yeah. to really, you have to really look to see if you're seeing what you think you're seeing, but yeah, they've, they've been captured, which has been a, a sad moment, but uh, this is how these things go. <laughs> Somewhat superficially similar to a hummingbird. I mean, they don't fly backwards as a hummingbird does, but right. superficially appearance wise, kingfishers are very similar. And that's one of the billboard examples. It's featured very prominently in your website. Janine Benyus, in the various talks she's given, often talks about how the kingfisher beak was used as the model for the bullet trains and how they're more efficient, they're much quieter, there's not that sonic boom when going through tunnels. And you also wrote about this in the article that you recently published, published with Green Teacher. Are there any standout examples of biomimetic design that just really resonate with you? That's a good question. Um, I'm a dabbler and the way that I think about biomimetic design and the things that I'm most drawn to is I, I really love the idea of people uh, looking for a local challenge that they're trying to solve through biomimicry, but I'm typically drawn to very wide applications that can elevate people's lives overall. And so I've really been thinking about um, more recently noise, right? Noise pollution and noise levels. And of course, I like the example of the Kingfisher because it it does speak to noise, noise levels and that persistent uh, churning and buzzing and cracking and popping that, that we always hear uh, as we're out and about doing our things. Um, mm -hmm. One of the innovations that was inspired uh, that reduce noise pollution was a sycamore a seed fan blade. It's a ceiling fan. And so it's designed after a sycamore seed. And I've been thinking about the amount of noise in my day-to-day -day life. And I'm, you know, fortunate. I live in a, a place that is, is zoned for uh, agriculture, right? Rural agriculture. So, you know, um, uh, every few months we'll see, people riding their horses uh, up and down a street. It is, it's an yeah. actual paved road. It has awesome. lines on it and everything where it's not a dirt road, but uh, we have horses. We have a, a cow named Mariposa that's a block over that, you know, goes out and about. We have goats. And so it's an ag area. And yet we also have a train that's not too far. So I'm desensitized to the noise of the train. Uh, because I hear it so often. I don't hear it anymore, but I am more sensitive to noises in the city. And so when I, you know, travel a little bit more into the city proper, as it were, it's not far, but I'm just a little bit more attuned to the noises uh, that I hear there. So I, I think I'm going to continue thinking about this, this idea of noise uh, and the different areas. And I, I think, as I think of what biomimicry can do for us, I think about some of the things that might be happening to us that are stealing a little bit of our health along the way that we might not be aware of. And I, and I feel like noise pollution is one of those things. So I think biomimicry offers the chance to really go through a mental inventory and even a physical inventory if it, if it works and think about the things that cause you a little bit of a jolt of, of stress 
and then start thinking through why and and how we might mitigate for some of those things through biomimicry through being out you know nature and hearing less <laughs> and i guess the natural response to that is some version of the question what would nature do how would nature address this or maybe more fittingly how does nature address that and that i think is where you get into really exciting research territory and for educators that could be the starting point of a lesson or a unit or a design challenge which of course we will talk about tbi's design challenge yeah absolutely yes i think you know we were we talked a little bit um about students um their their cultural background and what they're bringing to the challenge mm. and i think that with the youth design challenge there's an opportunity for students to really emote for them to think through how they're processing the world today and all of the things that are disquieting to them the things that they're uh, the things that they're dissatisfied with the things that they that they feel we can do better is a, it could be as a classroom community it could be as a school community it could be you know as a state as a nation uh, globally and I think that one of the very powerful things about biomimicry is that it does allow a person to individually think through the things that are important to them and then begin a process of rethinking it through a biomimetic lens and learning from nature to see if there are any mitigations to portions of it. I do think that once you start the process you do, you look at the challenge or the annoyance or the problem, the irritant, whatever it is that that's um, driving you, you tend to look at that a little differently. You really start to unpack what it is about that event or situation that's problematic, start to unpack it and really see it more clearly. And there is a power in that unpacking of it, right? Taking apart those little components to see, well, is it this portion that's unnerving and causing stress? Is it this portion? So I think if educators are out there and they're, they're wanting to start practicing biomimicry with the classroom, there's that wonderful emotional piece to it in which people are able to express what the challenges in their lives are. Last year, I was working with a small uh, group of educators in San Diego, California, their students were really drawn to the issues of um, homelessness or unhoused people. Right. And another group that uh, we were working with was working on something else. They're thinking through different things, but the San Diego group was observing walking around people who were living, you know, out in what we call public areas and sidewalks. And so that was a focus because it was concern and biomimicry allowed those students a pathway and some thinking through issues that feel very large and are, and yet are still made up of subparts or once reframed with additional understanding, there's not so much of the feeling of helplessness when you're observing something, just understanding the problem sometimes takes a little bit of the burden away, especially for young people who have a lot of, of emotional burdens right now. Well, we all do. <laughs> oh, yes. Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a registered charity in Canada that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. By taking out a subscription, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, 
receive each issue of our quarterly magazine and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. This morning chorus of birdsong is somehow both chaotic and soothing all at once. A sunlit clearing a few meters ahead catches your eye. On one hand, you can look at ecological issues like habitat loss and put that question, what would nature do? But something like homelessness or people who are unhoused, one could say, well, that's more part of the synthetic or the built environment. So how does biomimicry, how do nature solutions fit into that? So I guess that is the question is how does biomimicry fit into that important issue that's very observable and very local for many people? Right. Yeah, that's a really good question. So the beauty and the magic of biomimicry is that you can look at any issue like people being unhoused and continue to work it through. It's almost like you're doing a, um, a deeper analysis of why, you know, why are those individuals in that particular place? Like what has happened? And so, you know, sometimes problems present to us very different than we initially understood them to be. So, you know, with, uh, and we know housing issues are very complex, but, you know, of those, there's the, the motivation or the reason, maybe the mental health and wellness of the person, you know, the family history, the, the physical and uh, um, emotional uh, medical history, right? There are employment issues uh, to be dealt with. There are issues of, of people transitioning in their lives from one phase of their life to another, mm-hmm. or maybe um, also unemployment. So there are all these issues. And when you begin to do a root cause analysis without presuming that you understand why a person would be there, you might find that someone who's unhoused, you know, had it was in an area that it was damaged by storm and there wasn't enough housing. So now the opportunity for biomimicry might be uh, smaller uh, housing capsules that are available for people. Maybe they need to be portable, you know, perhaps they need to be something that's light enough that someone would, would be able to take with them and then, but durable enough to offer protection. You know, now maybe we're looking at a tent. Maybe we're looking at the types of structures that animals are able to quickly transport with them as they go into different areas and journeys. I'm not sure what it, it might uh, look like, but I, I can say in doing my own process of uh, looking at a problem and applying biomimicry to it, that the initial problem, the way it presents, typically is not how you feel or think or understand the problem after the process. And we don't, you know, we don't always have the answer. That's part of biomimicry. It's, it's the process and the outcome or the solution is the best that we can come up with at the time, but that can also be iterated on, right? So you might have a, a solution that works in that context for that time period and then requires another round. Yeah, I mean, not every road that you're going to go down is the road that you're going to end up on. So an example that popped to mind as you were describing that of animals that have movable, portable 
homes, you could call it, right. structures would be things like right. crustaceans. So a lot of different types of crabs might go through different shells that have been discarded in the ocean and they'll go through different ones throughout their lives. So, you know, maybe that's an area to do a deep dive in. Okay, what can we learn from crabs? What can we learn from some of these other crustaceans? Maybe it'll turn something up that's relevant to the issue that you're looking at. Maybe it won't. But in the process of digging into that, you are, I think, building the mental capacity or intellectual capacity to pivot and maybe back up and and go down another road. Yeah, it's always it's extremely fascinating. And, you know, Ian, as you were talking, I was remembering on, on the project that I'm working on, applying biomimicry, looking for a biomimetic design a conceptual design to uh, something that I've been working on for a while in education. My tendency also has been toward uh, animals, right? And so what yeah. I'm, what I'm uh, wanting to do is give myself time and permission to take a step back and then approach it through through the plant world. You know, you were you were talking about the 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 ficus here, and my ficus and I we spend a lot of time together. Um, <laughs> And yet I, I want to know more about my, my ficus and what, what it would be doing. What, what does it do when I'm not in the room? Probably breathes a sigh of relief. Huh? Oh, quiet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If quiet. the ficus could talk. <laughs> right. If the ficus could talk, but you know, in the next few months, I'm going to spend a little bit more time looking at uh, plants and how, how they're interacting with their environment. And I, I think that that's, you know, another, um, that's another area that students, as they're working on projects, they're typically drawn to animals as well. And so there's so much going on in the plant world. And then, of course, obviously those interactions. Yeah. Yeah. Plants, because they're not animate, usually do get overshadowed. But if people read, for example, Suzanne Simard and everything that she's done, all the work she's done about the wood wide web, everything that's happening among different roots and mycelia of fungi, it's like, wow, this seemingly <laughs> quiet forest has a lot of stuff happening that we can very much learn from. Yeah. Teaming with communication, right? <laughs> well, that's it. I mean, it might be a bit misleading to say that plants are talking to each other, but they're absolutely communicating in different ways. You know, we see masting of species like red oaks in my area, and that happens because of chemical signals that say, all right, let's do it all at once. And they produce more fruits than can possibly be consumed. Most of them are going to get eaten by squirrels and birds and so on, but enough of them, because essentially too many have been created, enough of them will find their way into the soil, take root, and then boom, the next generation of red oak trees. And that's all from chemical signals that we can't see. You know, isn't it fascinating? I was looking at, um, thinking, as I was thinking about this a sycamore seed today and its design, that that um macro that form um mm. i was also thinking about a mustard seed well seeds at all are just so fascinating the idea of holding a seed in your hand and you know what might be produced what might be the outcome for that that seed untold it's um, very profound isn't it yeah it is they represent potential they are potential incarnate Every seed could turn into a redwood, a sequoia, you know, some of the greatest trees that we see. You know, it, the, the fact that you said potential is so interesting because that's the word that I wrote down 
uh, today when thinking about this, uh, the seed and the energy that's in it encapsulated, thinking of, of potential and energy overall. Of course, um, there's been so much going on. We won't go too much down the rabbit hole of thinking through uh, energy, but definitely you hit right on the word, the potential. The potential that is in a seed is wonderful. It is. Did you know that a subscription to Green Teacher includes access to our massive and fast-growing archive of 500-plus ready-to-use activities, lesson plans, and articles? The recording of each new webinar goes into the archive too, and there are 120 of those and counting. To save you time, because educators never have enough of it, right? Everything is organized by topic and age group. Learn more by visiting greenteacher.com slash subscribe. We also have special rates available for bulk orders from your school, board, district, faculty of ed, or organization. As always, all proceeds go back into the nonprofit. The sun is shining directly on a large heliconia plant with its bright red bracts drawing attention to its nondescript flowers. Hey, what was that flash of blue? Let's get back to this idea of regeneration. And of course, we talk about education for sustainable development. We have the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And of course, those are very important and very worthy. But we also can't forget the fact that we need to sort of make up for lost time. A lot of people like Paul Hawken, who've written about this, are talking about how we, it's not just keeping what we currently have, it's bringing back what we have lost, while also simultaneously keeping what we have. And that regeneration piece is quite integral to biomimicry. So let, let's kind of break that aspect down. Right. I think that the the regeneration um, component means that we're trying to have outcomes or, or leave projects and processes and um, all the things that we do in this state where life is still possible. Right. Right. Um, and so when we... That, that component is a part of the ethos of biomimicry, the value of life, you know, and so when we think about uh, regenerative practices, it's for students, I, I do think they understand that, that life is precious and important. And I think as adults and educators, then it's our role to have conversations about what is life, which is such a complex question that no one has an answer <laughs> yeah. to. It's also a kindergarten, uh, kindergarten um, standard it that is. can trip yeah. up any, you know, what is life? What does it mean to be alive? Is it animate? You know, not. What if it doesn't move itself? What's the time period we're looking at? So it's very, it's a very complex uh, question and uh, biomimicry does not solve that uh, question, but it just adds an additional layer of understanding to thinking through life in its most basic levels and honoring it and making sure that at the end of every design and every thought process that we've been paying attention to the fact that life is present and designing doesn't need to mean destroying life. You know, if you, you think about um, our industrial society and our thought patterns, even when we think of, we call it developing land, right? I'm doing air yeah. quotes for people who can't see it, right? We're developing it. And if you were to ask a child, 
you know, what does that mean? It's like scraping the land and removing life from it so you can build, right? That's yeah. uh, typically where we like to take things. That tendency toward not thinking life is precious and thinking through ways of continuing life and making our designs regenerative. It doesn't come naturally to us now because we've had such a history of thinking of improvement as sterilization. You know, today uh, we were in our our TBI Slack channel, we were um, talking about rewilding. And I know I've had some conversations with some staff members, some colleagues um, about the states of our lawns, right? Individually, our houses and, oh, yeah. and what, and what they look like. And it's interesting. I, you know, I've told you, I live out here in the, the country. I have lots of eucalyptus trees. And so there's not a lot of grass. Grass doesn't typically grow underneath eucalyptus trees. And yet, so there's, and, and that's a trade-off that I'm happy with. And I am a little bit more out in the country, but in town, uh, we do have some coworkers who are in town and they've not wanted to apply uh, pesticides or herbicides on their areas in their house. And so there's been, unfortunately, a little bit of conflict with their, the neighbors in their area. Because through the, the lens of the neighbors, what they're seeing is neglect, right? Because our societal mental image of what care looks like <laughs> is, is sterile, right? You've got your lawn and it needs to end at certain points. So we've got edgers for that. So it doesn't, you know, make everything crisp and uh, contained in its area. And so trying to live through what does you know, regenerative, what are those regenerative practices look like? What is biomimicry? How do you live it? It's, there are challenges to it because in some areas it goes against our societal norms of, you know, what it means to be successful and to have areas that look cared for, you know, uh, your neighbors want to feel like you're paying attention and they're not next to a place that they feel is neglected. And so, uh, we've been having conversations about that because our ideal is that we we want to be in areas that are promoting life, but the reality are is that there are not always the local policies in place to support that, and or uh, those around you having that same viewpoint or thought process on what that means. Yeah, so a whole bunch of ideas spring to mind. I mean, on stepping back a bit, it sounds like. The concept of regeneration, because it's so implicitly integrated into ecological processes, it's kind of like a guiding principle as you use biomimetic design. It's the headwaters. I think yeah. this could be a great opportunity for an educator to look at this issue of, you could call it lawn grooming, and what can we learn about biomimicry? That, of course, brings into the whole social aspect. And as you mentioned, legislation. I mean, some people might get a letter on their front door saying your lawn is too unkempt, even if you've just decided to have a wildflower garden and let it go. And, right. you know, the flowers from last season eventually break down and they become part of the soil that will, you know, regenerate to allow for the growth of other flowers that, as you say, is seen in certain aspects or certain parts of our society as not caring whereas right. if anything it's caring the most so right. we don't necessarily have to answer this question and go through the particulars of it now but i think it's a great question to put to your class 
How can we rewild our lawns while addressing the social issues that might come up, particularly in urban and suburban areas? So that's everybody's challenge, everyone listening, a potential starting point. You know that the maintenance person on every campus right now is saying, why? Why have you done this? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) sorry, but I won't apologize. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Sorry, not sorry. Sorry, not sorry, yes. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. And those are just our our everyday interactions with the people around us and thinking those through. And of course, I do want to mention that I, you know, I know that there are policies and legislation specifically, especially in California, we're prone to um, extreme wildfires as Mm. you know, seen uh, in the news. And so there are definitely reasons for fire breaks on lawns and, and weed abatement. And yet, you know, even with the the legislation and the, the conversations that people have about their own area of control, area of influence, their house, mm. and, you know, maybe their acreage that they're, that there's on, there seems to be a missing piece because so much of it is not quite functioning well for us in society. It's like the, the overall function of, of how we're doing things and what we're doing uh, needs adjustment. And so at the Biomimicry Institute, we want to look to nature as the mentor, um, as our teacher for each new problem that we experience so that we're finding solutions that are more satisfying for all instead of just in the short term or that are causing other issues, you know, long term that we just didn't think through. Nature has a beautiful track record of (laughs) 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 of, uh, being able to iterate a design in this specific context which is our planet earth (laughs) yes you use that phrase think through and i think that's really what's missing and that's the new paradigm it's not well not new at all actually it's the existing paradigm that we need to bring back is just think through don't just look at a section of the process which is basically the modern industrial way of life is just thinking of an isolated section it has a beginning and an end well nature doesn't really it doesn't operate that way it's circular not necessarily a sphere or a perfect circle but it it's interconnected and it's inherently regenerative so yeah think it through i like that that'll be our new model think it through friends (laughs) hi there you might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now speaking of podcasts green teacher is involved in another one it's called earthy chats and you know what How about I let my co-host, Jade Harvey-Barrel, tell you the rest? Take it away, Jade. Thanks, Ian. Hello, all. Indeed, we'd love for you to join us for Earthy Chats, our new podcast where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education. Like busy bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. All of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. That's Canada's non-profit outdoor resource store. You can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoor learningstore.ca So whether you're a teacher, educator, parent or just a general nature geek there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into. 
Did I cover everything there, Ian? Definitely. Thanks, Jade. So yeah, Earthy Chats. Check it out on your favorite podcast app. It's a morpho. Of all the magnificent butterflies here, morphos might be the most impressive. Oh, it landed. You reach into your bag to get your camera. Well, let's talk about the youth design challenge. Some very exciting stuff we could get into. So you're the youth education or director of youth education at the Biomimicry Institute. And I believe the deadline for this year is April 1st. Yes. April 1st, 2022. Not a joke, even though April 1st is joke day, fool's day. So what uh, people who might be interested in getting involved, what do they need to know? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I know April first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. But joke. we're serious about it. <laughs> <Right>? Yeah. <laughs> um, so the the youth design challenge is for sixth through twelfth grade students, and it uses the sustainable development goals as a launching point. So uh, what we found is that sometimes thinking through the problems in a local community can be somewhat challenging right, for for students. And so we use those SDGs as a way to not necessarily uh, compartmentalize, but as a a way to set aside some relevant issues that are being worked on globally and see if there is a portion of that issue that falls into the student's local area or their local uh, context. So you know, climate change is one that is readily available for all educators uh, to use. And so we use climate change as the modeled activity. And yet any of the SDGs, you know, life um, below the, the ocean, life in the ocean, um, any of the SD, other the SDGs can also be used. So what, what the student would do is go through this process as a classroom, they could do it and they could all choose to do an organism that they're looking at and an issue that they're trying to address. You know, it can be done as a, as a class. Or it could be done more a team basis. So, you know, small, small teams of students working together. And so uh, what they would do is, is work through their identify a problem, something pressing that they really want to understand better. And then they start, they begin to look at our Ask Nature website and find organisms that have all of these wonderful uh, biological strategies that will help inform a design idea. And by the end of the uh, process, then the student, the you know, small student group will have a, a project that they feel really meets the needs that they identified. And so the, the needs can be wherever the class takes it. And then the organisms that they're looking at can be whichever ones of interest that they find that have some portion of what we almost like a clue to how this problem might be addressed or, or solved. So it's, it is a wonderful uh, project. It has applications to the student's real life. It's authentic science and mm. that they don't need to make, uh, make up a challenge or something pressing. They can actually beginning to be beginning to do work at their level, you know, and every year they could iterate on that design. So it could be done, you know, your sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade year, you could even use the same organisms because, you know, think of it this way. Oh, if we were to study a person, what can a person do? Well, you could write a lot about what yeah, we can do. a couple do. things. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. 
there's eating chips and (laughs) (laughs) right write a a whole thesis on that and so the the I think for the educators what I would want them to know is that it is a process and it is meant to be enjoyable and so allowing we were we talked earlier about allowing the students to emote a little bit and get out their emotions and talk about the things that are pressing to them I think is so important to this process because the things that are important to us we will persist in trying to find solutions for. And so that's where the authenticity comes in and allowing students to think about something that is, they're already thinking about it, but maybe they haven't been given um, time and permission by an educator to bring that up to the forefront in a classroom environment and really have conversations about how we might help, you know, all levels of society, all ages, multi-generational, um, working on these these problems through their lens and in their local context is a very powerful idea. And it's just another example of the importance of place-based education. And for our listeners, I'm sure you're very yes. familiar with it, but it just, it fits into that so well. Well, I think a great place to end off on this is to look at at, at least one example of a really standout project from the Youth Design Challenge that... Uh, you know, that has really impressed you. And I should also clarify, it's a uh, grade six to 12, but not just in the U.S. It can be anywhere. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so, for yeah, uh, yeah, that. Yeah, we have listeners all over, so. Right. Can submit. You definitely can submit anywhere. Yes. And um, each coach. So um, I probably should mention that each adult coach can submit up to three projects and you can have, you know, anywhere from uh, one to eight students on, on, on a project. And I don't need to tell you educators out there having more than eight on one project would be, could be problematic, but you know, sweet spot is three, three to four, you know, students working on a project. So in within the YDC curriculum toward the last phase is some support in deciding which of the projects to move forward. Uh, there's a rubric that's available that talks about those three seeds of biomimicry or the three essential components. And so all of those can be used to, to really hone in on the projects that are demonstrating uh, the best biomimetic design. So um, yeah, just wanted to tell you about that. Um, as far as the projects, I, I don't have a favorite project, but I look at, I look at all the projects and there are components of each one of them that I really like. And like I've said, for me, the more universal application is, is always a draw. So one of the projects that I uh, really liked uh, looking at is the, it's called the Morpho Brick. And so they're, they're looking at structural um, design and what, what they're doing with the design. I can go into a, a few of the pieces but what they do with the design is they they were looking at the butterfly, the morpho butterfly, yeah, the big blue and ones. noticing, yeah, yeah, and noticing uh, the different layers. And so they started to apply that to buildings, right, to architecture, and wondering mm-hmm. if the outside of the building could have a darker layer underneath that is uh, attracting heat because you do need uh, heat in a building, but then also an outer layer that is positioned slightly uh, different that catches light at different times of the day. So it allows some heat to uh, dissipate. So it's almost like a layering design on the outside of a building. There've been, I mean, there, there are just so many designs and so many innovations that have come out that students are really thinking deeply 
about uh, some of the problems. And of course, for up until now, the majority of them are positioned around climate change. But I believe that in the future, we'll start to see more varied designs uh, coming out of student thinking, because unfortunately, there are so many challenges out there right Mm -hmm. now in which you know, students are thinking about these things and having conversations. And so we're hoping that biomimicry can be the lens and the practice that's used to help students think through how they can go about changing and making a positive impact on their world. Very well put. And I love ending off thinking about morpho butterflies and we'll maybe throw some pictures of morphos up when we share this episode out on social media. Thank you so much, Rosanna, for joining us this morning for you. It's afternoon where I am. I'm in Eastern Time Zone. You're in Pacific. Really appreciate your insights, and I encourage everybody to check out the Youth Design Challenge and see how they can inspire their students to enter into this process. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate it and enjoyed our conversation. Lots lots to think about. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. In the process of slowly retrieving your camera, Your passport drops to the ground face down. You slowly pick it up, careful not to spook the large butterfly. As you close your passport, a ray of sunlight briefly catches the iridescent cover of the main page. The morpho flies toward you. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terian. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. I like the case studies and I also like for people to just explore. Do you know what I mean? It's like, well, it's like an art class. It's just like, right, right. It's like, I don't want to spend all my time looking at a, um, you know, a Monet just in case you happen to be a Picasso. (laughs) Yeah. Think outside the shapes. Right. This is sort of the Picasso way. (laughs) 